This is ESPN Crick Info. Bowl at Boyd's. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Bowl at Boyd's here on ESPN Crick Info. A new season has started. There's a test series going on in West Indies, county championship in England and of course the IPL in India. Lots to talk about and for all of that we have Mr. Jeffrey Boycott with us joining us from Antigua. How are you sir? I'm very good and uh, the sun's shining. I'm not in England, it's warmer here so I'm very happy. Alright, that's a good start. Let's start with the first question. This was sent by Mahesh Purandre from the United States. He says, uh, any special personal memories or interactions of Richie Benoit you would like to share with us? How would you rate him as a player, captain and commentator? And which one do you think was better? Uh, player and uh, captain, I, I've no personal experiences of. I think I would have liked to have played under him as captain. I spoke to quite a few players who played with him and under him and who watched him as a captain. He, was, uh, he had flair, he had instinct, that cricketing feeling that you can't buy, you can't teach people. You, you feel things are going to happen in the, in, on the field of play and you, you move your bowler to bowl, you move your field in positions and you attack batsmen in certain ways, and the, the, there's no drawing board for it, there's no book you read, it, it's a feel over experience, and, and now I call it cricketing now, so he seemed to have that in abundance. He played with flair, he played positively, tried to win all the time. I don't think he ever lost a, a series. Um, 28 test matches, was it? One in Pakistan, which isn't easy for uh, any team, but certainly Australians have found it very difficult. I first came across him in 65, 66. I was playing for England, my second tour as a young, a young man, and uh, he was playing for the Prime Minister's eleven in Canberra against MCC. I think he'd been retired about a year, but obviously he just kept his hand in because he bowled at me, bowled a couple of shortish balls, just short of a length. I pulled them with glee, whacked them away, but a little bit later he bowled me another one that looked exactly the same, and it wasn't. And he fizzed on, really quick top spinner, hit me right in front of the wickets for LBW, but fortunately I got away with it. It was too high, he was going over the top. And he just looked at me and stared, and I thought, yeah, he's a smart cookie, he is. And uh, I, I found that out a lot when, when I managed to commentate with him, which was a BBC. Uh, they did the TV in England, the black and white pictures. Uh, he was a man who kept to himself, his few words, very succinct, but if you asked him anything, he was very generous in his help. He helped me, gave me tips on uh, commentating about remember the viewer is the most important person and it's so it's what they see on the screen. Don't be talking about things that aren't on the screen because the viewer can't see them. So remember to talk about things that the viewer can see. And also remember that viewers are intelligent. And I treat them like that now, that they understand cricket. They've played as, as a boy at school. They've played club cricket, maybe even played even better. Uh, so most people who watch cricket have some understanding. So don't treat them as fools or idiots. Don't be telling them the obvious things all the time. Try and say something that adds to their enjoyment, their experience, their viewing rather than just saying the obvious. Um, and I've, I've remembered some of the things. Just remember also to pause before the bowler bowls. 
so that people who are editing for highlights and replays can cut there. Don't be talking over the, the point of delivery. Various little rudimentary things, but I look back now, and whenever you ask him anything, he kept to himself. He was always on his computer. He was always writing or researching or reading things, and he liked to gamble. He was a typically Australian. He liked to gamble on the horses. Not fortunes, but he liked a few quid here and there. That was his passion. And you would be mistaken if you thought that he was so involved with the computer that he wasn't watching the cricket. That would be a big mistake. Because although he kept to himself in a corner, he was always at the cricket early, he watched every ball. I watch every ball. I learn from that. If somebody's talking to me, I'm watching. Watching, that's my research. That's my mental notes of what's happening. And that was Richie to a T. He was, I think he was, look, for me, he's like Peter Alice at golf in England. They're just iconic. They've got a status that people adore listening to him. They don't say too much. He was always impartial. If you asked him, did he want Australia to win? He'd say yes. Definitely wanted his his home country to win, but he kept that to himself. When he was commentating, he was neutral, impartial. Which would I put the best look? Most people remember him for his commentating, but me, I'd have liked to have played under him as a captain. I think he would have been fantastic because he, what I've heard, he gave you clear views. The team, individuals, clearly what he wanted. I didn't shout, he didn't carry on, but you knew. This was a man who was in charge. This was a man who was leading. This was a man you could follow because he knew what he was doing. And that's really great leadership, isn't it? To get people to follow you, even if they're not totally sure or totally agree with you, but they believe in you. They believe that you will be right and it will come right because you have that presence about you. And I would have liked to play it under him as captain. Well, that's true, and there were so many sides to him. It feels like the cricketing fraternity has lost more than one person in some way. Let's take the second well, you question. You lose somebody because you've been so familiar with him. I mean, he was almost at the inception of television in England and Australia. So, therefore, on two continents, he would keep a private life, but publicly, he was there always, wasn't he? Whenever you turned the screen on, he was there. Richie was there. Always immaculately dressed. Didn't matter about anybody else. Tie, collar, jacket, hair groomed, nice. People have great fond memories of it. And the thing is about Richie, people will admire him, what he did, what he said, and admire his cricket and everything. But for me, it's like Seve Ballesteros at golf. He'll always be loved. Not everybody's loved. Many are respected and admired, but not necessarily loved. He will be. Boyk's question of the week. Second question was sent by V S Rao from India. He says, "Why doesn't cricket have standard boundaries? In some places, you have boundaries as small as 50 meters, and at others, 80 meters. Cricket is probably the only game which doesn't have standard playing fields. I think it's time that we defined that we define standard boundary length, say 80 meters. Then you don't have to worry about bat sizes, as batsmen will be more careful in hitting the ball in the air. What do you think?" <laughs> I think it's a good question, a good idea, but you haven't got a catting health, of, health chance of that happening. There's no chance, because most cricket grounds can't fit in to that parameters. They're not big enough. So the people who have cricket grounds, who have test matches, 
they're going to say, no, 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 we're not going to agree to that. Can you imagine you're going to get rid of probably 60, 70% of test match grounds around the world? In principle, it's a sound idea. But with that stipulation of 80 metres, they're not all like Melbourne cricket grounds, you know. I mean, look at Adelaide. Is it 80 metres from the middle through mid-wicket and cover point? I doubt it. It is lengthwise, so there'll be no more test cricket at Adelaide. That's just one. And I could go through grounds around the world that will be obsolete, a stroke of a pen. That's not going to happen. The administrators and the people who run those grounds are going to say, whoa, whoa, hang on here. We've had test cricket here for a long time. Test matches we need for the income. We get we profit out of it. keeps our club afloat. It's not going to happen. In an ideal world, your idea would be helpful to slow bowlers. Because now they're getting massacred, aren't they, with the big bats. They just miss it in them for six. And then when they hit it clean, it goes 15 rows back. So they're all bowling flatter and flatter to try and stop being hit out of the park. And even that doesn't stop it. So it, it is having an effect on cricket. I understand where you're coming from, but it's not going to happen. And that's why, see, these grounds you're talking about, Oh, there must be a hundred around the world test match ground. These grounds are already set in stone with huge stadiums and seating around. They can't make them any bigger. So therefore, they are obsolete. Just go around in your country, go around the whole of India, go around the whole of Australia or England and measure up how many could have boundaries all the way around of 80 meters. I think you've got a serious problem. Mm -hmm. Good idea, says Jeffrey, but practically not quite possible. Well, not if you scrap a, a lot of the test match grounds, then it's easy. But I mm -hmm. don't think that's going to happen. That's true. Third question sent by John from Australia. He says, after left-handed bowlers dominated the World Cup, why don't batsmen simply turn their bodies to compensate for the change of angle? I've never played at a high level, but I see many batsmen taking the same stance to both right and left-handed bowlers. What's your view on that, Jeffrey? Yes, the problem why left arm over the wicket is a problem for right-handed batsmen because percentage-wise, when you're growing up as a schoolboy, a young boy through club cricket and then to test cricket, all the various uh, lead-up to it, if you look at the percentage of left-arm seamers to right-arm over the wicket bowlers, it's small. So therefore, it's very different. You get used to right-arm over, you don't get used to left-arm over. And if you stand in the orthodox manner with your shoulders pointing down the, down the wicket or your left shoulder pointing down the wicket, then you are closed off to the left arm over. And you're right. Uh, you're better opening your shoulders, your hips, and your chest so that you're actually facing it almost two eyes, very much straight on rather than sideways. And for me... Um, I try to get over to about middle and off stump and open everything up. Theoretically, if you can play a ball that's coming at you straight back from whence it came, you have the best chance of not getting out because the bat's coming down straight at the ball. So the whole four and a quarter inches of your bat is being used. Now then, if you stay sideways on and the left arm over balls, if you play forward, you're actually playing with about three inches of bat. That's how difficult it makes it. And you're not playing straight. You're actually playing down the pitch almost at an angle then. The ball is coming at you at a 20-odd degree angle. So it makes it more difficult. 
So, theoretically, to play the left arm over the wicket seamer, to play straight back from whence it came, your bat's got to come down from about gully. Or, uh, yeah, fourth slip. That's not practical, is it? That, that's very difficult. But you can, from what your question says, you can open your chest, your shoulders, your feet, get further over in your stumps, and try and play from second slip or so back from whence it came so you don't have such an angle. Because once you're playing at an angle, then the bowler's got a big advantage. And you're dead right about what you say. But it's about familiarity. When we grow up and we're talking, we're actually facing right arm over the wicket bowlers nearly all the time, and there's only a few left arm over, we get used to it. Anything that you're familiar with, when you take people out of that familiarity and that comfort zone, it becomes a problem. And good left arm over seamers, and I mean really good ones, are awkward. Really awkward, and they proved that in the World Cup, you're right. Suddenly, I mean, most of us didn't know Pakistan had three left-arm seamers who were that good. I mean, they'd look sort of ordinary. And then suddenly, when they got the bit between the teeth, they got stirred up a bit. And that's what happens with fast bowlers. Yeah, once the blood's pumping, yeah, and they kept racing in, the ball was whistling through. They ball fantastically. Uh, and same with, you've got Stark and Mitchell Johnson, who bowl at such a pace. They wouldn't be... Quite as big a problem if the ball right arm over. But the ball that pace and the ball left arm, which you don't see a lot of, then they become more difficult. There you go, John. Some tips for you if you want to face some left-handed fast bowlers. And that's the fourth question of the show we come to, uh, sent by Fezan Hamdani from Canada. He says, with the return of Mohammed Amir imminent, does Jeffrey think that he deserves a comeback? And what kind of reception should Amir get? Well, I've always believed the spot-fixing incident, or any betting incident, uh, is a bad advert for cricket. But I am also of the belief that once a person has served his sentence, whatever that sentence is given to him by the courts, we should all accept that they have paid their penalty, they're due to society and they deserve a second chance to come back into a law-abiding society and try and be like everybody else and play by the rules and laws. And we should all accept him back with no strings attached. There's no point in us trying to gloss over it. It was a bad issue. It's a bad incident for cricket. It left a terrible taste in the mouth. It did harm to the game. It got to publicity for the wrong reason. All that... I'm full agreement. It's terrible. And I have no sympathy for any of them. None at all. Probably a little more sympathy for him. He was so young that it's easy to get led by your captain. But even so, I just think at that age you know what's right and wrong. And he should have known that that's wrong. That's cheating. And if we in cricket society don't allow people to serve their sentences, whether it's jail or just suspension, and then join everybody everybody else, then we are punishing them forever. That can't be right in a civilized society. All of us should never forget what those people did. And he's one of them. What they did was awful. But we should be able to forgive. Jail, suspension, punishment of any crime is because they transgressed. But society, normal society, has always said, listen, 
if you'll serve your punishment, we welcome you back and hope you're a better person and hope you'll stay in society as a law-abiding person. So the reception he gets should be okay, shake his hand, move on. But I say to people, don't forget it. Don't ever forget it. Just be able to forgive. All right, then that's Jeffrey's view on Mohammed Amir's return, and that's a wrap on this episode of Bullet Boys. There's a lot of cricket lined up: Test matches, T20s, County. Watch all of that and send in your feedback, your questions, your suggestions, and we'll try to take as many as possible on the next show, which should be in about two weeks from now. Until then, goodbye and good luck. You are listening to ESPN Cricket Info.